Well, I don't know if you guys have noticed this. It's not really super obvious, but we live in a culture of self-promotion. Has anyone noticed that lately? Uh, we have this thing now. Uh, only the kids do it. Uh, it's called social media. And like the whole point of social media is that you, you take this amazing picture of yourself uh, where you look better than you ever look in real life, and then you post it, and then you talk about the, the I don't know, one, two, three percent of the things in your life that are awesome, and then you leave off all the other stuff that doesn't seem so appealing. You guys haven't seen this trend, right? It's new. Um, it's new. Uh, it's interesting the way social media has changed our lives, but I think one of the things that we should remember is that the impulse that allows and contributes to that dynamic on social media has been in us forever, Right? What is in the heart is given full expression on the internet through the power of these sites and uh, networks and things like that. And, you know, I think what it does is it betrays this inner sense within all of us that we want to be seen in a very particular way by as many people as possible. We want to be seen as people who have it all together. We want to be seen as people who are either smart or attractive or uh, engaging and personable, funny, you know, whatever the traits are that we're inclined to pursue the most. And that's what we want to elevate and accentuate. And so uh, I thought it fitting to, to kind of ask a question of each of us this morning. Uh, do you think that you're all that? Do you believe your own hype is the question. And, um, you know, we've, we've, there's a lot of examples that we could look at in the world today, but I'd like for us to start with an example very close to, close to home. Look into your own heart for a moment and ask yourself, do I believe my own hype about myself? Do you believe it? Do I believe the hype about myself? Do you believe the hype about yourself? At the end of the day, do you really think you're all that? You know, as we've been taking this time to go through the book of Romans, uh, one of the things that I think has jumped out to a lot of us, and it's been mentioned multiple times, and Ileana alluded to it when we were talking about our catechism question for Sunday school, is, is thank God for the gospel. Thank God for the gospel when we, uh, when we identify where we really are, where we really stand before a holy and righteous God. You know, Romans 1, Romans 2, we're coming into Romans 3. It basically accentuates uh, the fact that we probably, uh, not only do we not live up to our own hype, to our own standards, but we certainly do not live up to God's standards. And just what for me was kind of a, a, a throw-in comment last week, uh, a couple of you mentioned back to me, it was this idea that, you know, God holds us to the standard of himself because there's no other standard in the universe available to him to hold us to, right? You know, when we, we hold people accountable to the law, so we are under the law. The law is, in a sense, if it's working properly in a democracy, the law is, has authority over everyone, right? So we can hold people to that standard. Well, God is above everything, so he's the highest standard. And, and that when we are measured against that standard, we all 
we all see the reality of our situation. And just to remind you, because it, uh, you know, it's been a few weeks now, when Paul wrote at the very beginning of this letter to the Roman church, is that he believes in the power of the gospel, because in the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed. And he says that the righteous by faith will live. Right? And so we need to address today something that we haven't gone deep on, but what is righteousness? What is it? If we're saying that it's being revealed and that, and that we can have it by faith, then what is it? Well, Paul begins addressing that by noticing what it isn't. And so in the second half of chapter 1, Paul takes the time to note that um, there are people in this world, believe it or not, who reject God. Who reject God. And I think what, one of the things that we need to recognize is that we all start in that place. We all start in a place of rejection. We actually, it, it takes quite a bit for us to go from a place of rejection of God to acceptance and love and faith in God. And a lot of us have a fairly dramatic story in our lives where, you know, it's kind of like uh, we read about Paul where he's, he's totally against God and then this dramatic event happens and there's a total 180 in our lives and we begin to follow after Jesus. Some of us, it's not as dramatic. Maybe we were younger. I was a little kid when I put my faith in Jesus and I knew I was a sinner because my parents told me I was. Uh, I, I think I could recognize that I probably was a brat sometimes, but beyond that, it didn't seem that deadly, the things that I'd gotten into. But actually older, as coming into teenage and adult years, I, I began to see for the first time just how low I could stoop when it came to sin. Um, but that the reality is that we all reject God at some point. And Romans 1 says that God's wrath is poured out. And we talked a lot about that. I don't have time to recap it all now. It's online. You can hear about it. It's actually uh, surprisingly good news that the wrath of God is poured out against ungodliness. Um, I think a lot of us left that morning surprisingly encouraged, right, to hear about the wrath of God because uh, it seems like such a uh, uh, problematic and, and scary and almost embarrassing thing to talk about. And yet God, in His righteousness, pours out wrath on sinners in such a way that it drives us to repentance. Right? And then in chapter 2, Paul's talking to the Jews. Remember, Romans was written because there's conflict in Rome between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And so he's writing to the Jews and kind of saying the same thing that I said this morning. You think you're all that? <laughs> and he says, no. Uh, the Jews have the law and yet they still remain under judgment because having the law, they do not fulfill the law. And then what Paul is going to do in the first part of chapter 3 is he's going to show not only that those who reject God have no hope in their own righteousness, and not only do the Jewish people who had the law have no hope in their own righteousness, but also Gentile believers have no hope in their righteousness, have no hope in our actions. And so, as we dive into this, that's kind of where we've been coming from. And I invite you to grab your Bible and open up 
to Romans chapter 3, and let's look at this together. If you don't have a Bible, there's one like this under a chair nearby. Of course, you can always use a phone, tablet, whatever you have handy. So in Romans chapter 2, remember God was saying, hey, Jewish people don't get a big head. You're not better than the Gentiles. But he doesn't want to be misunderstood. So he begins Romans chapter 3 with this, uh, with this question. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Because he had just said circumcision of the flesh is not what matters. It's circumcision of the heart that matters. It's not having the law that matters. It's obeying the law that matters. So now, so he's basically saying even Gentile people who don't have the law, when they follow their conscience, it's almost as if they are following the law. So then he says, what advantage is there to being a Jew? Because he kind of just put the Jews in their place, right? And then he says this, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful, Right? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. So what is he talking about here? Okay, basically, he's saying the Jews had the law, and it was, it was a gift of God to them because he was giving them his very words. They didn't have to try to figure out what was right and wrong on their own. God blessed them and gave them uh, this information, this gift. And remember that when we talk about the law, we're not just talking about the rules because the law of Moses is the covenant of God with Moses and the people. So the law, whenever Paul talks about the law, almost every time in Romans, it's not the same in every New Testament book, but in Romans, almost every time when he talks about the law, He's talking about this Mosaic covenant, this agreement that God had with his people that, that essentially that he would bless them if they did what he asked them to do, that he would curse them if they didn't, and that he would preserve them in the land. And we know that in multiple times in history, the Jewish people were cast out of the land of Israel, and then God brought them back. God was faithful to his promise. And so... What he's saying here is that if some of the Jewish people were not faithful to God, that doesn't mean that God wasn't faithful to them. Because the argument might be, well, Paul, you just, you know, you're saying that it's, they've got this gift of the word of God, but you just said that no one has followed it. You just said the Jewish people didn't keep the law. So how is it a good thing? How is it a gift? And Paul's saying it's not the faithfulness of the people that matters. It's the faithfulness of God that matters, right? And then he quotes from um, Psalm 51, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. This is the Psalm of David after he had committed the sin of adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband, Uriah. And David's basically saying, God, if you're judging me, then I must be the one in the wrong." I have no defense if you have found me guilty. God, may I be found a liar and may you be found true. This is what David says. At the expense of his own, potentially his life, right? Because he knows that the punishment for this crime is death. But he basically says uh, what Paul is saying. Lord, if, if we're in disagreement, then you're the one who's right and I'm the one who's wrong. 
In just the same way that God has no standard of holiness higher than himself, there's no standard of truth apart from himself. And this is hard for us to grapple with, you know, maybe philosophically, because it feels so weird to think uh, this person's right because they're the one who said it. Right? We want to say God's right because he matches up with some external value of truth, which is a very kind of platonic uh, Greek idea that, that there's some, there's some uh, disembodied truth out there, and then God has to match himself up to it. And what Paul is saying is, no, God is the truth. And everyone else will be the liar when they disagree with him. Now, part of my heart and my mind does not like that. I don't. Because I just said, hey, we live in a democracy and everyone's under the law. But you know what? God's not a democracy. God is not under the law. God is not subject to your criteria for his fidelity and for his uh, accuracy. He is, he is the truth, right? He is goodness. He is beauty. He is the standard by which everything else is measured. And so Paul's saying, look, yeah, it's great to be a Jew, but, but um, if the Jews don't do what God called them to do, don't blame it on him. Right? And he goes on to say, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust and bringing his wrath on us? Here's that wrath coming up again. And he says, I'm using a human argument here because certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may result. Their condemnation is just. Now, admittedly, this is probably an argument that does not connect with most of us. Probably most of us don't think, you know, I should, I should be less truthful so that the truth of God becomes more apparent. I should be less righteous so that there's a greater contrast for the world to see the righteousness of God. I should be, you know, less holy so that God's holiness stands out more. I don't think that really resonates with us, but, but Paul was getting this pushback from people. They're, they Basically, they were saying, and I think they were being somewhat hyperbolic, but I think they were saying, look, if you're saying that none of us uh, can live up to God's standard, then why are we even trying think it's a bit of giving up. Why not just go our own way? And I don't know if you've ever felt like that. I think a lot of Christians, we can relate to that. I'm never going to live up to the standard that God set for me, so why do I keep trying? Why do I keep, you know, bucking up and starting over? Why do I keep setting these uh, expectations for myself that I can never meet and feeling constantly like a failure? Maybe I should just do my own thing and leave all this God stuff behind. Yeah, I think there's a lot of us who can relate to that at one time or another, maybe right now. And Paul is saying, look, that's not really what I'm getting at. And he uses this word, he says, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, then what shall we say? 
And, you know, this is where we need to take a pause and ask, what does Paul mean when he talks about righteousness? And if I were to do a little poll here, I mean, feel free to respond. When you think of the word righteousness, what words come to mind for you? What do you think generally that's talking about? Truth? Justice? Faith? Anything else? Hmm? Deserved? Worthiness? We might think of holiness, right? It could be something simple like doing the right thing. Righteousness is doing the right thing, right? And often, you know, and, and I know that, um, you know, we've had, we have the scripture that teaches us. So I love that. I heard the word faith out there. But I think a lot of times in practice, what we do is we try to think, how can I be a better person so I can be more righteous? And by better person, normally we mean something like breaking fewer of the rules, Right? Is that fair? But the thing is that particularly in the Old Testament and in the Jewish mind, uh, which is very removed from most of us in this room, but not all of us, righteousness has more to do with relationship than it has to do with rule-keeping. More to do with relationship than rule-keeping. To be righteous means to be in right relationship with someone. Now, some of you guys might remember, do you remember we did a sermon series during Advent, and we looked at the women in the genealogy of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke, and one of them was Tamar. Do you remember Tamar? Tam- what, what did Tamar do? Does anyone remember? She pretended to be a prostitute to have sex with her father-in-law so that she could get pregnant and have a baby for her deceased husband. Woo! Woo! That's in the Bible, folks. Do you remember what Judah says about Tamar? She is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I. Why is Tamar more righteous than Judah? Because Judah was unfaithful to the family by refusing to provide his third son to Tamar so that she could have a child for her deceased husband. You see, this is very relational. But Tamar was so committed to her dead husband and her dead husband's family that she was willing to trick her father-in-law into sleeping with her so that she could have a baby to carry on the line and continue the promise of God made to Jacob. She's righteous because she honors the relationships and she honors the family commitments more so than Judah, who had abandoned them. Isn't that so weird? Do you remember Rahab? Tamar pretended to be a prostitute. What was Rahab? She was a prostitute. Where? In Jericho. She committed treason against her country. Right? She, was, uh, uh, she lied to her people to allow an enemy to come in and take over their city and destroy, uh, destroy the, whole, the whole group of people, except for her and her family. And yet she's a hero of the faith. The Bible says that she was faithful, and by faithful, it doesn't mean that she followed the rules. She was a liar, she was a prostitute, she was a traitor. It meant that she committed herself in relationship to this God 
who was coming to destroy her home, but she stayed true to that relationship rather than being true to her people. Righteousness is relational. Every, almost every, sometimes there's no uh, context when we refer to God being righteous, particularly in the Old Testament. You know, the, 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 it just talks about the Lord being righteous. But when there is context for the Lord's righteousness in the Old Testament, it's almost always that he was faithful to his people that he made covenant with. So to be right, for God to be righteous is that he always and consistently honors his covenants with people. Now, God didn't just make a covenant with Moses, and God didn't just make a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with you and with me through Jesus Christ when we put our faith in him and his death and his resurrection. God is righteous because he is always faithful to his people. We are righteous to the extent that we are faithful back. And we're going to see this play out in just a few moments in the passage here. So, to be considered righteous is to act properly in accordance or in regard to a covenant. That's just so different from how we think about righteousness. We think of it very much in, this was This was right, this was wrong. This was right, this was wrong. This was right, this was wrong. And God is talking about righteousness in the sense of, I was faithful to you, will you be faithful to me? Now, it doesn't mean that the rules don't matter, because here's the deal. If God says, I'll be faithful to you, and I am faithful to you, now here's what I expect you to do, and you don't do what he expects you to do, then you're not being faithful back. So it's not that the rules don't matter. It's just that the emphasis is on the relationship and not on the rules. It's kind of like as a parent, you know, if, if you tell your kid, hey, go clean your room, right? And they don't clean their room. You don't get all angry that they broke the law of the house. You don't think, ah, I set a law for this house and you didn't follow it. No, you get angry because they didn't do what you told them to do, Right? They have dishonored the relationship. So we understand it intuitively in our homes, but then we think of it differently with God. But God is your parent, right? Because it's, again, relationship. All this covenant language is all family language. Um, When God made a covenant with David, he became his father and David became his son. When God makes a covenant with us, we become sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ, right? A marriage covenant is when two people who are not family become family in marriage. Right? Covenant and righteousness is family business. It's relational inherently. So therefore, in Romans at least, not in every book of the Bible, right? Because these aren't technical terms that Paul wasn't uh, he wasn't using jargon here. He was just using words in context to explain what he meant. Righteousness equals right relationship, okay? So if you were going to define righteousness, you can define it as being in right relationship, in this case with God. And then what should follow is the right actions that honor, that are consistent with that relationship. And this, you know, if you're reading ahead, this is what Romans 6 is about. Um, this, is, um, this is all throughout, throughout there. So it's, it's different 
from how we often think of it because we come from this kind of uh, our, the Western world has more of a Greek mentality. Again, Plato who had these forms that were these external uh, um, immutable truths that, that, that existed apart from any person or being. But again, in the, in the mind of the biblical writers, truth and beauty and goodness reside in a person. They're not, they're not uh, just out there in the ether. They reside in the person of God, and then we would also say in the person of Jesus Christ. So, that's kind of, when he says our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness, when he's talking about there, and we're about to get into this extended conversation on righteousness, he's saying if our unfaithfulness points more clearly to God's faithfulness, well then, Shouldn't we just be more unfaithful? And Paul says, that's, he doesn't even answer the question. He's like, that's just a horrible question. That's a question that doesn't deserve to be answered. I didn't believe in questions that didn't deserve to be answered until my wife showed me the truth and showed me the, the light in this. She's, she, I'll, I, you, know, you know, you're in an argument and someone asks an unfair question. She's like, I'm not even going to answer that question. I'm like, can you do that? <laughs> right. Now, and of course, I, if I'm the one asking the question, it makes me, it furiates me, right? How dare you not answer my question? Paul's like, I'm not even going to honor that question with a response. It's a horrible question. How dare you? How dare you think that your unfaithfulness puts you in better standing with God than faithfulness would? It doesn't even make sense. It's dishonoring. And he's right. It's dishonoring. He says, Uh, he says their condemnation, the people who ask these questions, their condemnation is just. These people will be under condemnation. They will be under the wrath of God. He says, all right, so then what's the deal? What are we going to conclude? Do we, now he's talking about himself as a Jew, do we have any advantage? Right? So if, you know, I just said the Jews have the benefit of having the law, so then do we have an advantage? And he says, not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. He just made his whole case in Romans 1 and Romans 2 that whether you're a, a person who doesn't have the law or a person who does have the law, you stand equally condemned before God. You, you're condemned apart from the law if, you're a, if you don't have the law, and you're condemned under the law if you do have the law because nobody holds up their end of the bargain. And then he says, as it is written. Now, this as it is written, I had to write this down because he quotes one, two, three, four, five, six different Old Testament passages here. He's going to make the case from the Old Testament. He's going to use the Jewish people's own words to illustrate to them that they have failed God in respect to their their own faithfulness, that they have not been faithful to him. And he's going to do it, and we're going to look at each piece. He's going to do it by highlighting different aspects of, of the way that the Jewish people have failed. Now, here's the point. Again, Paul's speaking as a Jew. He says, do we have an advantage? Because there's conflict between the Jewish people and the Gentile people. The Jewish people are saying of the Gentiles, we're better than you because we have the law. So in the church, these are all believers in Jesus Christ, right? We're better than you because you don't have the law and we do, so we're more righteous than you are. And the Gentiles are over here saying, are you kidding me? 
We've seen how you live. You're no more righteous than we are. In fact, we're probably better than you because we didn't have the law and we got here and you had it and you're still struggling. So we're better than you are. No, we're better than you are. I could do this all day, right? And so he's going to make the case first that the Jews have no right to stand in superiority over the Gentiles. So here's what he says. These are all Old Testament scriptures. They're all written about the Jewish people, most of them prophecies from God directly, Some of them, a lot of them from the Psalms as well. Here's what he says, as is written, verse, verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away and have together become worthless. There was no one who does good, not even one. One. So right away, Paul's saying, look at the character of the people of God. Look at the character. Essentially, these people are, they're foolish. They're not righteous, meaning they're not faithful to God. They don't understand, so they have no wisdom. They don't seek God. They turn away from God. They become worthless. They don't do good. Not a one. He says, look, the Jewish people... According to the Old Testament, they're foolish and sinful. They've got horrible character. Right? That's verses 10 through 12. Then verse 13 and 14. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. So he says, not only are you foolish and sinful, but look at your speech. Look at the way you talk. You're corrupt. Your throats are open graves. Your tongues practice deceit. Have you ever heard, do you remember in the Old Testament where, you know, and it's referred in the Gospels as well, when you leave a territory and you've been rejected there, you shake the dust off your feet? Well, there was a, there was a uh, custom in Israel that when you came back into Israel from another nation, you would shake the dust off your feet. Why? Because you don't even want to bring the corruption of that place back into your homeland. And the general consensus was that uh, not only did the, did the people outside Israel not keep the law, but they didn't even properly dispose of their dead. And so you might have unclean, uh, you, might, you know, you can't touch a dead body in the Jewish religion, in the Jewish faith, that you might have inadvertently have, because of their poor practices and burial, be bringing in some kind of dead flesh on your shoes back into Israel making you unclean. So you shake even the dust off your feet. That's how serious they were about avoiding uh, dead bodies. But then the psalmist says here, your throats are open graves. What he's basically saying is, you guys are so bad that you bring the worst kind of defilement with you wherever you go just based on your words and your speech. Your tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on your lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. So your character is awful. Your speech is horrendous. It's corrupt in every way. And then in verse 15 through 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. They know the way of peace Uh, The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So he basically says, not only are your your character is corrupt, your speech is corrupt, but your actions are corrupt. You're murderous. You kill. You bring ruin and destruction and misery. 
It reminds me of when Jesus heals on the Sabbath and the Pharisees say, you can't heal someone on the Sabbath. And then they go and plot murder on the Sabbath to kill him. It's like such, I was going to say pathetic. It's just, it's, it's an irony that uh, if it didn't hit too close to home for us, it would almost be comic. But the reality is we all have those tendencies within us. We condemn someone for doing one thing, and we turn around and do the same thing, right? And sometimes worse. So their character, they're foolish and sinful. Their speech is corrupt. Their actions are destructive and murderous. And then verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes, so they are proud and irreverent. Now here's the thing. Paul's point, and it could feel almost like he's bashing the Jewish people. You have to understand where Paul's coming from. He is a Jew. He's not just saying, like, I'm a Jew, so I can say this. It's not that. What he's saying is, this is the best of the best of the best that humanity has to offer in regards to righteousness. Okay? God chose his people. They are special. They are favored. There is value in being Jew. They've been entrusted with the very words of God. They, uh, historically, they, the Jewish people saw God manifest on the mountain to give them the law. They, were, they saw the pillar of uh, flame by night and the pillar of cloud by day. Right? This is the best hope for humanity to do the right thing. And yet, they're totally corrupt. So his point is, if the Jews can't do it, what hope do you have? Verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. He says, look, the law is there. So that you can't pretend I didn't know. Did you know in the United States, if there's a law in the books and you don't know that law is on the books, it doesn't mean that you're not guilty of breaking the law. Right? You cannot say, well, I didn't know you had to stop at a stop sign, officer. You know? You can't, I didn't know that I couldn't break into my neighbor's house. Like, no, that doesn't, doesn't change anything. But what it does say is like, look, no, here's the statute. You can't plead innocence. You can't plead ignorance here. Here's the statute. Paul already mentioned in Romans 2 that not everyone has the law. But even those who don't have the law have a law written on their heart and their conscience. And even our consciences condemn us. Right? But he says, hey, if you're under the law, then, then you have no defense because you had the law. Therefore, verse 20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. 
We talked about this last week. What's the law for? One of the reasons for the law is to make us conscience, conscious of sin. Why would God want us to be conscious of sin? Because God is very kind. and He wants to give you a chance to repent. Not knowing is no excuse. But if you know, then maybe you can do something about it. And that's where Paul's going to go next. And so next week, we're going to look at the rest of chapter 3 and see what then is the hope. Because here's the thing. Um, If you are trying and trying and trying and trying and trying and trying to be better, then you will absolutely, indeed, feel like a failure over and over and over and over and over again. But the solution is not to say, ah, I'll use slightly strong language for a church. Screw it. That's not the answer. You don't say screw it. What you say is, I guess I need to look somewhere else. I need to look somewhere else for my righteousness. Paul says the best of the best couldn't earn, couldn't earn God's uh, acceptance He won't declare any of them righteous by the works of the law. Because when you get into that heavenly courtroom, whatever it's like, and you stand before the judge, and God's the judge, and God says, were you righteous? And you're like, here's everything I've got. He says, well, just remember, the standard is me. Oh, uh, never mind. (laughs) Right? And God says, okay, guilty. Guilty. And in that moment, here's the crazy part. You're going to say to God, you're absolutely right, Lord. You are absolutely right. That is the most appropriate response to the defense that I have made because it was not a good defense. No one will be declared righteous by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Yeah, Lord, I see it. I failed. I didn't do it the way you asked me to do it. I wasn't good enough. And Here's the beautiful thing, and this is where we're going to spend our time next week. This is where the hope is, is that after the um, declaration of a guilty verdict, what comes next? The sentencing. And God says, all right, well, the penalty is death. And Jesus says, uh, uh, counsel, or, you know, your honor, <laughs> may the counsel speak. And God the Father says, yes. And he says, uh, sir, the penalty's already been paid. The beauty of the gospel is not that God somehow makes you perfect in this life, right? That's going to come, and we'll talk about how that happens. The beauty of the gospel is that God says, I'm going to be perfect for you since you cannot. I'm going to pay the price for your failure, and I'm going to let you pay the price, so to speak, get the benefit of my success, my perfection. Because I will be completely faithful in my covenant relationship with you, even though you have never been as faithful to me. Isn't that beautiful?
That's the gospel. It's not about trying harder and trying harder and trying harder. It's about resting more and resting more and resting more in Jesus Christ. Now let's bring it back to why Paul wrote this letter. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot appropriately ever think you're better than someone else or worse than someone else. Never. Because the best of the best of the best failed miserably, equally to the worst of the worst of the worst. Right? Everyone, everyone falls short. No one is righteous. No one seeks God. No one understands. There is no fear of God in anyone's eyes. This is that healthy fear, the appropriate fear, right? The kind of fear that leads you not to stall and and shrink back and run away, but the kind of fear that, that draws you further in to trust in the Lord. We are all hopelessly lost when we're judged by what we've done. So our only hope is in what Jesus has done. In other words, you ain't all that, but Jesus is. And that's the answer. You think you're all that? Nope, but I sure do think Jesus is. I sure do think he is. All that and a slice of cake or whatever you want to put on top, right? All that. That's the hope of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, there's so much, um, at least for me standing here, but I think for many of us, there's so much here that could bring us to shame or bring us to fear or, or you know, elevate our guilt or whatever it is that, you know, just this recognition that we have not, we have not done what you've called us to do. But God, again, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of your covenant with us is that you have been for us what we could never be for ourselves. You took from us what we earned and you put it on Jesus who didn't earn it, meaning condemnation, judgment, death. And you took from Jesus what he earned and put it on us, meaning Righteousness and freedom and relationship and peace with you. The great, the great uh, switch of history. And so, Lord, rather than us feeling condemned by this message, Lord, we can feel enthused by it. We can feel excited by it. We can, uh, we can take hope in it. So God, help us as we see our sin increasingly clearly that we not be driven to despair but be driven to joy because we are not under the threat of that sin if we put our hope in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray today that also each one of us would uh, do what Paul says in Philippians, which is to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, meaning that healthy fear that drives us to trust you more, 
rather than a fear that would push us away, and that we wouldn't take our salvation lightly, uh, but that we would treat it with the, uh, the weight that it has earned and that it deserves. But God, again, the joy, the joy, the joy, the joy, that we are in Christ, and he is in us. And so we have freedom from the judgment that is righteous and good and appropriate. And Lord, that we are received as sons and daughters before your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.